This is Fred Venturini, and you're listening to The Booked Podcast, which is way better than being on fire. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Welcome to part two of Booked's uh, Noir at the Cantina Milwaukee uh, live reading uh, series. It's a two, two, we're at two of two. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, the previous episode, you uh, listened to Ruth Jordan, Brian Quartermus, and Frank Wheeler Jr. If you did not listen to that, go back and listen to that now. We will wait. They've had enough time. Let's All right. <laughs> uh, and so this episode, we have the, the second half, which is three more authors. So at a certain point, John Jordan will take over hosting duties. Um, apparently... I don't know what happened, but I think the police were involved, which shouldn't be surprising with a bunch of crime writers and noir at the bar and anything else. But John did take over hosting duties um, part of the way through um, this recording. But first, you're going to hear from Rob Riley and an excerpt from Dead Last, a private investigator story, as you'll hear here shortly. That's right. After that, um, kind of an awkward introduction between John and the second reader, Matthew Clemens. Um, Apparently... They um, know each other quite well because John started to do the introduction and then Matthew just kind of rolled right into talking about um, his history of writing uh, uh, with, um, I guess, is it a partner? I (laughs) I couldn't really tell what was going on with that. I'm not sure. I I don't know. I believe so. Or an alter ego. I'm not sure. We should probably look into this. Could be pseudonyms. Could be a partner. But either way, um, he kind of rolls right into it. So it's kind of a half introduction. But his name is... Matthew Clemens, um, just to make sure you know, because it wasn't fully announced in the episode. Um, and he's reading from a book called Supreme Justice, which is published through Thomas and Mercer. Um, you may or may not know that it is our podcast buddy, Seth Harwood's uh, publisher. Yeah, I liked where that um, that excerpt was going. That was kind of interesting and weird to see something written in the future in the crime community. Yeah, it's true. Good point. Like, we see a lot of things that are written, like, in the 70s and the 80s and today, and this went a different direction. So, interesting stuff Mr. Clemens is doing there. Um, Right after Matthew Clemens, Hilary Davidson closes it out with an excerpt from Blood Always Tells. And um, while you're listening to that, I want you to think about this, because I want you guys to hit Hilary Davidson's um, Facebook page and tell her that she needs to record her own audiobooks, because she has a terrific voice for it. I already told her this. Um, but I'm encouraging other people to do the same. Yeah, she had a she has a really good reading presence, is an obvious. And then at the very beginning of her kind of section, she does say that she's been basically doing like a city a day for her tour, and she ended it out with Milwaukee. So she's got to be in pretty good practice by the time she got to us. All right, so here we go: Rob Riley, John Jordan. Matthew Clemens, Hillary Davidson. Next up, I'd like to introduce to you one of my favorite contributors to Crime Spree Magazine, first of all. Rob, I would really like to thank you for making that phone call. I so enjoy Tales from Blue Line. I don't know if people follow the Crime Spree website, but every week you will find a new installment from Rob's former position as a police officer here in the city of Milwaukee. But when he retired, he began writing, and he's been very successful at this second career, including the novel Portrait of a Murder, right? Yep, okay. And tonight he is going to read for us, which short story did you pick? I picked 
Nice to see all you people here. It's uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be invited here. First of all, there's people from all over the country, and uh, that's always a it's always an impressive thing. And uh, uh, so far, the, the readings have been very interesting, and uh, I hope that I can have something to that. Uh, first of all, I, I just want to. Uh, say that I, I was a police officer, a detective for the city of Milwaukee for about 32 years. Uh, I worked undercover on the narcotics squad for seven years. And uh, I worked on, uh, in uh, major crime investigations for 22 years, uh, including homicides, robberies, burglaries, and uh, you name it, the, the entire thing. And uh, writing had been part of my Drive, uh, drive within me all my life. Uh, I wasn't prepared to do that when I was a younger man. So I, I had a job first to make a living and started developing writing as uh, an avocation. And I was fortunate enough to be taught uh, how to write and uh, have a novel workshop with a brilliant writer. Uh, who has now passed, but uh, he taught me uh, how to write, and he also taught me how to stick in there. And that's that was the biggest thing, because I, um, I'll tell you, I've, I've had 700 rejections from agents, and all that tells me is that agents don't really know how to read very well. <laughs> Actually, the, the, everything was, tran tran there was a transition going on with the market, uh, with how books were being published, and it's now come to the to the ebooks uh, thing, uh, but I, I learned how to write. I've written six complete novels. They're all complete and edited, and two of them have been published so far. The first one, Portrait of Murder, I'll show you, uh, was a uh, award-winning. I uh, won the uh, best police procedural of 2013 at a conference in Chicago called Love Is Murder. It's one of the main conferences. Uh, crime mystery conferences in the country. And uh, this is my second novel, and I'm uh, going to read uh, this chapter would be the most appropriate. Okay. <clears throat> uh, first of all, the, the Jack Blanchard is the main character. He is a retired, or uh, resigned from the Milwaukee Police Department. It's, it's, it's in, uh, based in the city of Milwaukee. And it's about him deciding to give up on all the extra garbage and that, that goes on with police work, all the politics and what have you. And he just wants to do mundane investigations like finding people and uh, that type of thing, as, as opposed to all the other major stuff. He, can, he knows he can make a living doing that. So here's the beginning of this chapter. It's, uh, the drive back to Milwaukee was sobering, not what I wanted to feel. After returning to my not-so-plush apartment on the outskirts of the city, I ate a sandwich and watched some TV from my reclining chair in the living room. It had grown dark outside before I went to my desk 
and sat at the creaky old kitchen chair. Before me on the desktop lay my private investigator gear, a clutter of pens, pencils, and heaps of papers. Stuck among the debris was a spiffy new computer with all the attending gadgets. The harsh but inadequate light in my kitchen ceiling depressed me. The high-intensity lamp on the desktop always reminded me of the third-degree interrogation scene from a film noir detective movie. There you go, noir. <laughs> from a film noir detective movie. But drama aside, it helped. I quickly reread the file. It still reeked. What really stank were the Riverbend Police Department's bizarre standards. I could not reconcile Walter Brockman's powerful status with the horribly screwed up homicide investigation of his son. A couple things stuck out. Harry Cologne had never been located, or maybe he had been. Maybe the report hadn't been filed, or it had been lost or stolen. I had to consider all those possibilities given the incompetence displayed by the police. His reported address had been in a derelict Milwaukee neighborhood and he'd moved, quote unquote, by the time it was checked for the, for the River Bend investigators by the Milwaukee police. No forwarding address, no shit. Anyway, that part of the investigation stopped there. The person reporting the auto theft that day before Hale Brockman was killed had done so over the phone. That's how people get away with using suspicious names like Harry Cologne for police reports. <laughs> but many departments have started accepting reports of crimes by telephone, even crimes with no solvability factors, to save money. They also save paying for anyone's incarceration since fewer bad guys get caught. The Riverbend police chief had allowed the investigation to stand as written and had an officer take it to the DA's office where the case was marked pending, returned to the police, and snuggled back into the file. Unbelievable. I had burning questions about that and other things, but again I had to stop. After closing the file, I looked up toward the cabinet above the sink on the other side of the room. A bottle of Old Bushmills Irish whiskey was growing lonely in its place behind the cabinet door. It had been untouched for a couple weeks, and I stood and went to the cabinet and opened the door, and in a moment, the bottle and I were reunited. I returned to my chair with a whiskey bottle and poured a couple shots, maybe three fingers, into my empty coffee cup. I only drank straight from the bottle when I was already drunk. <clears throat> there was time enough for that. I started sipping the whiskey and loosening up, and then called Marty and left a message for him to call me back. Stepping on wealthy, powerful toes was bad, and there, was, or, and there were things for me to know before I started my work. I took a gulp from the cup. That was better. In a short while, my cell phone rang. Marty had my cell phone number too, since he was a close, albeit old, and almost forgotten friend of mine. Assuming it was Marty, I answered without looking at the caller ID. You gotta be shitting me, I said, without saying hello. I need some answers before I do this, and I need them now. My belligerence, always bursting to get through, had been uncorked by the booze. 
I knew this wasn't going to take long, Marty said. Yeah, I, I started, said, yeah, I started drinking, and you know how drunks are. The truth comes out from somewhere at least, and I decided the truth was going to come from you. He chuckled. What do you need? Everything. And by that I mean how the hell did this case get ditched? I mean really. There was a long moment of silence. And why are you stuck with it? I asked. No lying. There's no short answer. You should know the Brockman family background a bit. You should know about Hale. And to understand Hale, all you have to know, to know about is Walter Brockman. You're not making an opening statement to a jury. Talk plain, I said. How drunk are you? I'm not, I said, lying a little. I was being a wise ass, so shoot. He pointedly cleared his throat and said, Walter is a retired Wall Street investor living on a pension. Jesus, I thought. Dude was gonna play me with drama from lines from the movies. Continuing, he said, Walter had been very shrewd with his investments and made an unbelievable fortune. Are you ready to keep following me? My point is down the line. I took another drink of whiskey. I'd given up and said, I trust you, in barely a whisper. Walter made himself into a major player. Some called him a financial buccaneer. He became famous in the money-making community. He bought failing companies, refurbished and sold them, and was able to increase his portfolio. That was how he took off. He's a hostile takeover guy. Marty snorted. My client is a brilliant investor who knows how to make the best of a bad situation. Like Dr. Kevorkian, I said. You may choose to see it that way if you wish. Guys like him make it bad for the honest ones. Guys like him inspire shitbirds and thugs to squat in public parks and to fuck up a city. I'm talking about New York two years ago. <laughs> that was in reference to that. He continued speaking in an ever-increasing monotone, saying that Walter's son Hale had grown up watching Daddy and had gone to college ostensibly to become just like him, a rich man with rich wife and rich kids. The first part came about, the second two, wife and kids, didn't. Mr. Brockman had boyfriends instead of girlfriends. Jealous lover, I asked? Was Hale a player? Of course, he was. Rich, son of a bitch. Not so fast, well maybe, but still not so fast. Okay, slowly then, jealous. Hale was very discreet about his lifestyle. Neither he nor Walter ever discussed it with me. People in Riverbend knew little, mostly that he was gay. So you shouldn't jump to conclusions. Certainly not. I'm just keeping my options open. By the way, what's Mrs. Brockman's story? Well, and that's another th thing I said, raising my voice while I interrupted. How the hell could everyone just let this slide? A murder was flat out ignored. It could look that way. What about a rich Walter Brockman? He could have raised a world-class stink. Why the hell didn't he? He wanted to give everyone a chance to do their jobs. Walter and Evan Pogrob, the DA in this county, are close. They claim they went to college together. I met Walter through Evan. 
I thought, claim they went to college together. That's a weird story, I said, managing to say only half of my thought, the way it sometimes is with people who've been drinking. What can I say? Something else was stinking. It felt for all the world that things were purposely being ignored, like a cover-up. But the guy who wanted the case investigated had all the power. Walter Brockman could instantly make his global curiosity something covered 24-7 on all the news channels. He could ruin people who opposed him. Walter made special requests to the news media that he be left alone. They complied rather than have a pissing match all over the stonewalling. He guaranteed that he would do. <coughs> Since there were no suspects and no leads in the case, what had been had been frittered away. The media only gave it a short coverage and let it go. So all of a sudden it's a big deal. And Big Wally's big money is screaming. And you get all the pressure. A loose wire shorted the deal. After waiting a moment, I said, and the loose wire is Hale's mother and Walter's dear wife, Edna. That's where Mrs. Brockman's story comes in. Mama wasn't satisfied, apparently. Mama told Walter's money to start screaming, as you put it. And Big Wally couldn't stop her? Edna and Hale were the two things that Walter Brockman could not stop. So this is a, so a sordid family story where the rich old man spoils everyone and they end up spoiling things for him. Is that it? I've always liked your way of getting to the point. I've been a lawyer too long and lawyers do anything but get to the point. That could end the lawyer's career. Exactly. Facetious though it was, we both chuckled. It felt good to break things up a little. It was clear that Edna Brockman's interference had been unexpected, unwelcome, and was an inconvenient, very bad development. One that certain people behind the scenes, cops, DAs, bagmen, maybe even Walter himself, weren't happy with. I wondered how much Marty really knew. I wonder what he knew. Seems time for me to ask you to wish me good luck, I said, and sucked down the last of the whiskey from my cup. Good luck, he said. Before we hung up, Marty confirmed my retainer, the whoppingest I'd ever had. For all the money he was spending, Walter seemed detached. He was obviously a realist and shrewd as hell. There were virtually no chance that the real story of his son's death could be uncovered by some small-time private investigator like me. Maybe appeasing his wife was all the money. Maybe appeasing his wife was all the money's worth Walter needed. I disconnected the call. I belched and brought the whiskey bottle to my lips and took a deep swallow. The old bushmills inside me had gone a step beyond my warm being my warm friend. Instead of going to bed the way I should have, I took another pull of whiskey from the bottle, switched on the computer, and started checking everyone named in the reports with the state's criminal investigative records division. For laughs, I ran the police clerks and police officers' names. I also ran the DA's name, and then Walter and Edna Brockman. Why not? Edna had received a speeding ticket, which she surprisingly paid, not using the power of her name to make it go away. Checking those names made as much sense as anything else in that file. 
In short order, I learned that some of the principals had no record. The car renter, the person someone at the car rental agency had allowed to call himself Harry Cologne, the person reporting the vehicle stolen, and the car rental's employees' names came back as, quote, not on file, unquote. Not even driver's licenses, which told me they'd supplied false names. My, my, an actual reason to get interested. It dawned on me that there'd been no copies of record checks in the police reports. I've never seen that before. One more oversight, another filthy room in a foul-smelling house. It almost appeared that everyone in the criminal justice system had purposely done everything wrong. Heads needed to roll, the cops, the DAs. But the small town of Riverbend, Wisconsin, tucked away in the lightly populated LaBelle County, was owned by Walter Brockman, the man who had the interest and the power to get things done right, and apparently considered everything to be hunky-dory. The only head I saw rolling was my own. So I'd like to remind everybody, uh, Richard's got copies of books by Frank and Rob and Hillary. We've got copies of Crime Spree with Hillary's short story in it. Not me. Uh, not Matthew. Matthew's probably written more books than you know. Uh, he can explain to you why. Um, I met Matthew in 2003, around there, in Las Vegas, five minutes after we had the idea for doing Crime Spree magazine. We had a meeting to talk about it. On the way out, Axel Collins introduced me to him, and basically every voucher con we would spend at least four or five hours combined smoking together. Yeah. Instead of doing author stuff. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't have to do author stuff because normally my partner Max Allen Collins has his name on the books. How we get work is what determines the byline. If people ask for both of us, both our names are on the cover. If people ask for Al, Al's name is on the cover. Uh, Supreme Justice, which will be out July 1st from Thomas and Mercer, is our 22nd novel together. We've been doing this for 14 years. Um, we started by doing tie-in novels for CSI. We have now come to this, where we are doing something completely different, something totally not noir, and something set about a dozen years from now. Presidents come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. William Howard Taft, 27th President of the United States of America, 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Section 30, Grave S14, Grid YZ 3940, Arlington National Cemetery. Every chapter in this book begins with a quote from somebody buried at Arlington. Unfortunately, you're not going to get to find out why because you won't be here that long. <laughs> chapter one. In less than an hour, Nicholas Blunt would be staring into the infinite blackness of a Glock barrel. But right now, at the end of a another typically long and tedious day, as a Supreme Court law clerk, Nikki seemed almost to bounce across the well-appointed outer office 
of Associate Justice Henry Venter. If you didn't have endless energy, best not to clerk at the top court in the country, especially if you were working for this notoriously conservative, famously hardworking African-American justice. Six foot two with a bland blonde handsomeness counteracted by piercing hazel eyes, the youngest son of Senator Wilson Blunt of Tennessee was well aware he had not risen to this elevated position due to personal achievement. Though, on paper, he was as qualified as anyone here. Nonetheless, his posting was strictly a matter of privilege. Nothing more, nothing less. The Blunts had been wealthy and politically connected since before the Civil War. Then why, to the rednecks back home, did the Blunt men maintain their good old boy standing? Simple. The senator talked only about guns, God, and America like the two Senator Blunts before him. Granted, the Democrats had won the last presidential election, but after 12 years of having things their own way, the Republicans knew a pendulum swing would come. And now that it had, the idea was to make that swing, pardon me, and now that it had, the idea was to swing that sucker back as soon as possible. Thanks to two-term neocon President Gregory Watson Bennett, the GOP still controlled the Supreme Court. But then, the next sure thing president, Vice President Michael Haston, had been upset by African-American Democrat Devlin Harrison, and all bets were off. Harrison had been a hell of a campaigner, and with a name that close to devil, he'd had to be. On the other hand, a guy with the middle name Hussein had managed it not that long ago. <laughs> Another black man in the White House was not enough to take the grin off Nikki Blunt's well-tanned face. The conservative Supreme Court had already made numerous inroads, not the least of which was overturning the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision. The next election would surely see the grand old party taking back political control of the other two branches of government. Nikki's older brother, Governor Nathaniel Blunt of Mississippi, was the odds-on favorite for the top of the ticket next time. They would wangle a moderate, Gilson of Indiana, maybe Kelly from Pennsylvania, to appeal to Northerners. Then once Nathaniel was elected, Nikki would move in next to him as Attorney General. What the hell? It had worked for those damn Kennedys. Some in the GOP thought the Blunt boys too inexperienced for high national office, but Nathaniel was only the fourth Republican governor in Mississippi since 1876, a feat not easily shrugged off by the old guard of the party. Nathaniel would be 43, the same age as JFK when he got elected, two years from now. Nikki would be 36, about the same age as Bobby Kay had been. And as for experience, wasn't he clerking for Associate Justice Vendor? Nikki glanced into the AJ's office. There sat the man himself, leaned over in his tufted back chair, tiny reading glasses perched on his nose, a green shaded banker's lamp on the corner of a massive mahogany desk, providing just enough light to view the, the brief before him. Bull-necked with graying hair, Venner had played football at the University of Missouri, though keeping in shape had never been a priority. Still, soft around the middle, though he might be, Venner was fairly fit for 70. Mr. Blunt, came the resonant ramble, rumble from within the office. You're hovering again. 
the Madden had the man hadn't as much as glanced up. How did he do that? Nikki froze, and the deep voice continued. Is there something I can do for you, Mr. Blunt? Uh, no, sir, Nicky said, flushing. Why did he always feel that Venner considered him an idiot? Um, it was just the opposite. Now Venner looked up, a crease between his brows. Oh? I mean, I, I was just wondering if you needed anything. Venner took off his glasses and rotated his neck. I'm fine, the justice said. I think it's about time we called it a day. About time was right, Nicky thought. The AJ might have been past the average man's retirement age, but his work ethic showed no sign of flagging. The judge was still the first one in, and generally the last one out. But just after seven, stopping now would make a 12-hour day. But Nicky knew all too well that Venner routinely worked an hour or two more beyond that. Should I call Hudson? Nicky asked, referring to the justice's driver, a retired bailiff. Venner rested his glasses on the, de on the desk, then wiped two meaty paws over his face before answering. The man sighed, actually sighed. <clears throat> Do you have time for a drink, Mr. Blunt? Was that a trick question? The AJ had never shared a coffee with Nikki, much less a meal during the six months Nikki had been here. Six months during which Nikki had never felt more than a glorified gopher. Of course, sir, Nikki managed. Call Hudson. Tell him we'll be down in ten minutes. Yes, sir. Within half an hour, Nikki was sitting across from Venter at a table in the bar of the Verdict Chop House, a restaurant frequented by the judiciary and its top staffers. Nicky was used to being in the same room with the most powerful men in the country. After all, his father was a senator and his brother a governor. But the patrons of the restaurant were enough to give a cable, give a cable news network anchor whiplash. One more cabinet member, one, wow, English. Let me try this again. One former cabinet member, a former Supreme Court justice, the current director of the CIA, and two CEOs of major financial institutions. And that was just one table. The bar was all dark wood and linen tablecloths. Meals could be ordered here. With a formal service staff as alert as first responders. Tradition oozed from the walls of the verdict, which had served its first customer during the administration of Teddy Roosevelt and had been a DC staple ever since. Oil paintings of past justices were spotted around with tiny gold identifying plaques. Venner and his aide were seated at a table for four off to the side near fire exit. Justice Venner had ordered a scotch on the rocks and Nicky was allowing himself a martini, but only one. You've been chafing, Mr. Blunt, his boss said. The man's voice hushed. His tone friendly but resonant enough that Nikki did not feel relaxed. All the martinis in D.C. could never have done that. Uh, I'm not sure I follow, sir. You feel underutilized in your position. It was not a question, yet Nikki wondered if he should answer it as if it were. The statement rang true, of course. Of the four clerks working for Justice Venner, Nikki came from the most politically powerful family, had the best scholastic record and had outshone the others at every opportunity.
yet Venner always seemed to favor them over him. Against his better judgment, Nicky said, I guess I do, sir. Feel underutilized. I don't think there's any guesswork involved, Venter. Venter gave him a rare hint of a smile. You're under the mis misapprehension that I dislike you. Emboldened by this honest exchange, Nicky said, that's a little strong, sir. I would say you don't particularly care for me. I'm sure that's an accurate assessment of your own feelings, Mr. Blunt. He shrugged his big shoulders. But I assure you, it's a misrepresentation of mine. How so, sir? The hint of a smile blossomed into a grin, a goddamn grin. But was it friendly or sinister? The justice said, clerks at the court come and go, Mr. Blunt. Some will go on to great things. Most will not. Yes, sir. You, Mr. Blunt, you, I believe, can do great things. Nicky frowned, not sure he'd heard that right. The AJ might have slapped him. Um, thank, thank you, sir. A cough of a laugh seemed prompted by the unsureness of Nicky's response. You're welcome, Mr. Blunt. Perhaps now you'll understand why I assigned my other clerks to write up the summaries of the certiorari petitions thus far. But Nicky didn't understand. If he was the best of the clerks, why were the others getting the summaries? The certiorari petitions were the documents filed to request that the court review a case. A well-written summary of the cert was often the first step in getting a case before the Supreme Court. Likewise, a poorly written one, even one that could lead to a major issue, would be certain death for said petition. Reading Nicky's confusion, Venter smiled again and said, and this time there was no way to read anything but, and, wow. Ah. At what point did I lose English? <laughs> Reading Nikki's confusion, Venter smiled again, and this time there was no way to read it as anything but sincere. That shouldn't have been that hard. <sighs> anything but sincere. It's really English. I've been saving you, Mr. Blunt. To use a sports analogy, you're going to be my cleanup hitter. Sir, I, just listen. There is a petition coming in on a case that I want to make sure the court hears. Your summary, Mr. Mr. Blunt, will be the first volley. Now, do you understand? Uh, yes, sir, thank you, sir, Nicky said. He sat forward, if I might, what is the case? Illinois versus Meacham, you know it? Nodding, Nicky said, yes, sir. Do you mind demonstrating that you know it? Yes, uh, that is, no. Um, the state of Illinois arrested Laverne Meacham under the state's eavesdropping statute because he used a cell phone to take footage of three officers who were beating up his brother. Yes, Venter said. Thoughts? Two ski masked men in black burst past the maitre d'inn into the bar. The smaller of the two brandished a nine millimeter pistol while the bigger one clutched an AK-47. Both Nicky and Venter's mouths hung open in interrupted conversation that turned to shock. The larger of the intruders shouted, ladies and gentlemen, this is a robbery. Hands where we can see them. Get frisky and die, understood? No one answered. But most hands went up or at least rested on tables as the nine millimeter wielding smaller figure moved deeper into the room. 
withdrawing with his free hand a plastic garbage bag from somewhere and shaking it open. In a harsh, high voice, he whispered, he whispered? He yelled, wallets, jewelry, cell phones. He began at the bar with the patron nearest him. Fear spread through Nikki's body like sudden flu, and just as abruptly, his bladder seemed to be bursting. Until those men had exploded into the bar, he hadn't even known he had to go. Now the discomfort was unimaginable. The man with the pistol moved around the horseshoe counter, collecting wallets and other valuables from customers. His partner's, roam, his partner's eyes roamed the room, searching for any hero who might try to break up the robbery or call 911 before his cell phone had been confiscated. Nicky's own cell felt like a brick clipped to his belt. He would not be the hero. He would not, not die in some stupid damn bar robbery and never be attorney general. Never follow his brother into higher office. He resolved right then, for the good of the nation, he wouldn't do anything stupid. Under his breath, Venner said, now is not the time to do anything rash, Mr. Blunt. No shit, he thought. <laughs> but he did, did not share this response with the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. He merely nodded, which was all he could manage, busy as he was doing battle with his bladder. The holdup man with the garbage bag and the big pistol now moved closer to Nicky and Justice Venner, collecting more items as he hopped from table to table. Nikki risked a look at the bigger man whose eyes slow scanned the room like a prison tower guard, ready to use the AK-47 he held in port arms. When Nikki turned back, the shorter one stood before him as if he'd materialized, and Nikki found himself staring down the barrel of the Glock into that endless black hole. Again, his bladder screamed. Stop stalling, haircut, the holdup man said the barrel of the Glock inching towards Nikki's face. I, I, was all Nikki got out. Do it! Nikki reached slowly to his belt to remove his cell phone, fumbling a little. From the corner of an eye, he saw Venter start to rise. What was Venter doing, trying to stop this? Nikki wanted to shout no, but the word caught in his throat. The Glock swung away from Nikki's face toward Venter, who was on his feet now. The gun barrel belched flame and its, ex and its explosion brought Nikki momentary deafness followed by an intense ringing. A pink mist lingered between him and the falling associate justice and blood and brain matter splattered the nearby fire exit. Several patrons were screaming. A woman and a man or two in terrible non-harmony that got cut off by an automatic bur burst from the AK screamed into the, oh, wow. Several patrons were screaming, a woman and a man or two, in terrible non-harmony that got cut off by an automatic burst from the AK into the ceiling, not the patrons. The weapons owner yelled to his partner, let's book. The shorter holdup man glared at Nikki, who knew if he survived this, he would never forget the ice blue eyes behind the ski mask. Then the barrel of the Glock filled his field of vision again. The young man with the assured political future prepared himself to die. Said a silent prayer, but the shot didn't come. The holdup man said, the nigger didn't have to die. You hesitated, asshole. This is on you. Then the holdup man hit Nicky across the face with a pistol. The gun sight tearing his cheek, his bladder releasing, even as his vision was filled with a mini Fourth of July skyworks 
accompanied by shooting pain that seemed to engage every nerve ending in his body. Chairs tipped over and patrons yelped as the thieves ran like hell out the front. Nicky lay there, breathing hard. The warmth where he pissed himself strangely comforting, but he had no, <clears throat> but he had to turn away from the vacant eyed stare of Associate Justice Henry Venter, who had, before getting shot in the forehead, finally acknowledged his aide's potential. First, Thomas and Mercer. You can pre-order it on Amazon now. I'm supposed to say that. We tell me that. Well, and Richard will actually have it in the store because he actually does work with Thomas and Mercer. Yay. That's why we love Richard. So next up, we've got Hillary Davidson. Um, I found out after the fact that we were actually the first people to put her in print in Crime Spree with a short story. And we've seen her on every book tour. She's one of our favorite authors. This is her first standalone novel. Hillary Davidson. Thank you. Thank you, John and Ruth, and just thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I've actually been on tour the last few weeks for the book. It came out April 15th, and I basically started running around the country, literally a different city every day. I am so happy to say this is the end of my tour, so I'm capping it off here in Milwaukee. And there is no better send-off than to do a noir at the bar. I've done these events now in um, New York several times, in LA, in St. Louis, in Toronto actually as part of the tour, um, and even in Albany of all places. And it's always fantastic to read with other writers. So anyway, um, Blood Always Tells, like John said, is my first standalone. If you know my Lily Moore books, um, this is much darker. This is much more like my short fiction. And one of the appeals in writing the book was to really take off the gloves, not have the rules of the world that I'd created with the main character and her relationships in that. And really, anybody can betray anyone in this book. And they do. Um, the premise at the beginning is there's a woman named Dominique who has been having an extramarital affair. She was okay with that, with this sort of two-timing boyfriend that she was seeing. Um, she was okay with it until she found out that he had been lying to her and actually seeing another woman on the side and she decided to get some revenge. Um, just as she starts her own plan for revenge, they are kidnapped and taken to a house in the middle of a wilderness area, Dominique has no idea where they are, and they're separated. And she finds out that she's not the only one with a grudge against her boyfriend Gary. And so I'm going to read a short section picking up from there. Dominique went over the room looking for anything she could use as a weapon. The nails in the wall were a possibility, if only she could get one out. She pulled and pried, damaging her manicured fingernails in the process, before finally extracting one. It was two inches long, with a flat head and a dusting of plaster dappled over its surface. Lying almost weightless in her palm, it didn't look like much of anything, let alone something dangerous. Some weapon, she thought. She went back to the window, scratching at it with the nail. If plexiglass could laugh, it would have quite the chuckle right then. Maybe I could pick the cuffs with the nail, she thought. That wasn't exactly her skill set. Desmond, her brother, could have done that with his eyes closed, at least as a teenager, but he'd never taught her how. While she was contemplating the possibilities, she heard a key in the door. She put the nail in her pocket and glanced at her watch. It was close to nine at night. 
The man eased the door open gingerly, as if expecting an attack. I've been thinking, he said, and I have an offer to make you. Oh? I'll let you out of here. Kidnapping you was never really part of the plan, so I'll let you go, but on one condition. What's that? You help me kill your boyfriend first. He smiled, revealing perfect, even teeth. His no tone was nonchalant, almost playful. How about it? Dominic stood stock still, balanced between shock and horror. Say that again, she told him. I don't think I heard you right. You heard me just fine. Maybe I did, but I don't believe you, she answered. What you're talking about isn't just crazy, it's evil. I'm not suggesting you kill an innocent person. This is about Gary. He's a good person at heart. You know that's not true, the man said. He's a sleazeball who married a woman he didn't even like for her money. His mother had breast cancer and was on the verge of losing her house, Dominique pointed out. I think that had a lot to do with his choice. Gary took good care of his mother until she died. He took great care of himself, too. Only the best would do for him. He was a golden boy, raised to think he was better than everyone else. Handsome, athletic, the type who always got the girl. The man lifted his big shoulders in an impassive shrug. He got addicted to a lifestyle he couldn't afford, and that made him a monster. Did Gary hurt someone you care about? Is that why you kidnapped us? No. The man shook his head with obvious impatience. I told you, this is just business. Then why are you obsessing about him? He reminds me of a certain type of person I hate. So smug, so superior. But personally, I don't care about Gary one way or the other. Make no mistake, he is a killer. Who did he kill? The man cocked his head to one side. That's a complicated question. Well, why don't you explain, she prodded. It would take too long. Anyway, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me if Gary lives or dies. It only matters to the person I work for. Gary is going to die tonight. No, you can't. The only question is whether you're going to die with him. Do you want to? What kind of fool question is that? The man's mouth stretched back in a smile that lasted for a nanosecond. You're beautiful and you're kind of amusing, so I'll make you a deal. If you'll kill Gary, I'll let you live. That's your idea of a deal. What's wrong with it? I would have expected you to say you'd let me live if I sleep with you. Obviously, that's also part of the deal. He was so cool as he said it. Dominic didn't feel the slightest spark of desire from him or any heat from his skin, but those feral eyes of his said, I have you in my power and I can make you do whatever I want. But that's just a given, he said and sleeping with me wouldn't keep you from going to the police and telling them what I did. But killing Gary, that makes this a completely different game. You do that, you can never go to the police. Really, you think the police would blame me when you're threatening me? I'm not threatening you. Gary dies in either case. That's not a threat. The only question is what you're going to choose because I believe you're capable of murder. You're wrong. I know all about you, Dominique, he said. I've read about you, and I know all about your mother. Dominique clenched her hands into fists. The metal chain of the cuffs rattled. You don't know a thing about her. I only know what the newspapers said, but I also know that blood always tells. Your mother was a murderer. You're capable of killing a man just like she did. You listen to me. 
Dominique could feel her own heartbeat pulsing in her throat. My mother didn't murder anyone. Your mother went to prison for putting a bullet in your father's head. The man spoke slowly, driving his words home with frightening precision. He wasn't just a control freak, he was a sadist. Her lawyer tried to claim it was self-defense, he said, but there was no evidence your father ever beat her. No bruises, no doctor's visits, no hospital visits. The jury didn't take much time to convict her either. Everyone knew she was guilty. The gun went off by accident. Now that she was cornered, Dominique found herself clinging to the same story Nana and Desmond had told her, the one she'd always refused to truly believe. She'd grown up hating her mother for taking her father away from her, and hearing the same charge from a stranger made her recoil. It wasn't murder. A shot in the head at point-blank range. That was no accident. Dominique backed away from him, bumping into a wall. She had been four years old when her father died, her memory of that night was shadowy and vague. Her mother had given her a bath and put her to bed as usual, and then she didn't know when because there was no clock in her room. There was shouting and firecrackers. It was like the 4th of July, she thought, and she'd gotten out of bed and pulled back the shade over her window. But there were no sparkly lights in the sky. It was raining. She remembered seeing Desmond streak across the lawn, and she watched, fascinated, when a police cruiser pulled up in front of the house. The police had been very nice to her, taking her to the station and giving her candy and pop. Early the next morning, Nana came to collect her. There has been a terrible accident, Nana said. Your daddy has been hurt. Nana wouldn't say dead, but that was what she meant, only Dominique wouldn't learn that until later. Nana never wanted to talk about what happened. Later, when Dominique was in elementary school, she asked Nana about that night. Your mama said it was an accident, Nana replied. Don't you believe her? She swore to me she never meant to shoot him. That means it was an accident. Dominique had never been able to get Nana to say more than that. As she'd gotten older, she'd lost the desire to know more. It was a tragedy she wanted to bury. Now, Dominique took a deep breath. Is that how you want me to kill Gary? Put a bullet in his head? That would be appropriate, don't you think? History repeating itself in a way? He was as relaxed as if he were offering to grab some takeout. You'll never be able to tell anyone. Think of the stories, like mother, like daughter. It would have to be our secret. You're serious? I give you my word, he answered. I will let you live if you kill Gary. I can't be any clearer than that. All right, again, you just listened to Rob Riley reading from Dead Last, Matthew Clemens from Supreme Justice, and Hillary Davidson from her latest book, Blood Always Tells, and a little bit of John Jordan um, taking over the hosting duties kind of in the middle. Um, there wasn't much of a cohesive kind of wrap-up, um, partly because John was at the back of the room and far from the mic, and people were kind of talking over him. So um, you'll hear a little bit of clapping, and I cut off some of the stuff that just you couldn't hear too well. Um, so there wasn't like a, hey, big thank you kind of thing like you usually get. So um, sorry about that. Just kind of, that's the way it happens when you're re recording live. Anything, anything could happen. That's why you and I never record live, except for the one time. And we were terrible. Remember our own reading? Yeah. We weren't very good. Yeah, that was, uh, Brian, uh, Brayton really saved us. Big yes, time. thank God. Thank God for Brayton. He should do more stuff for the show. Just saying. He really should. 
We have to settle rate, for Malik Tambali. <laughs> Malik Tambali. All right, so if that wasn't enough noir at the bar for you, Rob has an article up at Crime Spree. It should be up already, I believe, through the magic of podcast time travel. Um, it should be up, and it is the complete unabridged history of noir at the bar, right? It's like 4,000 pages. <laughs> yeah, I had to trim it down. Yeah, yeah, because editors, you know. Wait, that would be a bridge then. I guess never mind. <laughs> I have to look this up the is, definition of a bridge. Yeah. Oh, we are so bad at this. Any rate, um, yeah. So the history of noir at the bar, which um, Rob mentioned, I think during the last episode, said is very rich. It's super goddamn impressive. The people that have been involved in noir at the bar, um, both in the the legendary standpoint and like the up and coming perspective. Just some really really terrific people. Um, we've made great friends through noir at the bar, um, and you should too. That's right. Enough about that. We talked about that for two episodes. What do we got coming up in the future, Livius? I am very, very excited. One of my favorite friends of this show um, has a collection out. Radium Girls by Amanda Gowan will be our next review coming up next week. And who knows? There may even be a special guest for that episode. I'm not making any promises, but we're working on it. Wow. That would be even a surprise to me. I didn't know that was an option. Yeah, well... well. That's cool. Yeah, Thunderdome Press put out this uh, Radium Girls book. It's available now, and um, it's it's Amanda Gowan. If you if you need to know anything about her, you can go back to her zombie extravaganza, Spectacular, or check out the Warmed and Bound anthology. Check out the man anything Thunderdome put 50 out. Fifty Shades of Fifty Shades <sighs> of Grey episode. Yeah, go to our fifty. That's the one you want to do. The Fifty Shades of Grey episode. She was on in top form there. It's one of our top downloaded episodes. Not not surprisingly, I guess. Damn right it is. So, but yeah, two guys. Because um, we talked about the Secretary of... movie. Oh, well, of course that's why. <laughs> I had to explain to somebody what that movie was today. And you know, I was like in shock. I was like, what do you mean you don't know what this movie is? That's a crime. That's a crime. Oh, oh, oh wait. It gets it gets so much worse. Oh, I, uh, I don't <laughs> even know if I could talk about it here on the show. I go, they said something. I was like, James Spader. And, and and one of my coworkers goes, "Who is that? What, what what's he been in?" Oh. So, so of course, so I'm like, "Oh, because I was talking about the movie Mannequin." So I was like, "Well, Mannequin, obviously, <laughs> and like Tough Turf," and I, I'm like, "The Secretary," and I'm like, "Crash," and I always have to follow Crash immediately with, "No, not that Crash." <laughs> <laughs> Dude, not the one, so not stuff. the one that won an award. Two Days in the Valley, Boston Legal. The blacklist, less than zero, less than zero. I think we could go on and maybe on. I don't know about a third on, but we he can was go in on like on about it. Two seasons of The Office. The dude's been all over the place. Yep. Who's who? Who is he? What's what's uh what's what's he been in? <sighs> I weep for humanity. Yeah, but I'm sure that um, by uh, reviewing Amanda Gowan book, James Spader may come up yet again. Just a feeling. James Spader, probably llamas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely um, llamas. I don't know if we were going to talk about this on the podcast or not, but how cute is it that Craig Clevenger and Rob Robert are doing a cross-country trip together? I have to imagine that this was one of those, like, I have to get a car from, like, New York to <laughs> Arizona kind of things, right, right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I would have. Here's the whole thing. 
you know how big I am on traveling and driving long distances. Right. If they would have needed a third driver, I would have immediately <laughs> taken a week's vacation and met them on the East Coast. That is saying so much. That is saying yeah. so much because you hate, yep. like the Milwaukee trip, I think was too much for you. It was, I got to tell you, it was stressful. I, I almost had to take a couple of days off work and recover from that. Yeah. All right. And just in case you haven't gotten enough from two episodes from us this week. Soon, I would imagine, probably very soon, we'll be appearing on an episode of This Is Horror. I can't tell you how excited I am about uh, the reason we're we're appearing on This Is Horror again. Um, and it's anytime they need someone to talk about a movie or like a TV show, like we're the go-to guys. Yeah, or we just cajoled them into it. One of the two. (laughs) Yeah, it's They're like kind of these guys are shit about books, but man, they know some TV shows. Let's get them on the podcast. And the TV show specifically that we're going to be talking about is one that had recently wrapped up, uh, which is Hannibal, my favorite show that has been on in a long, long time, and certainly my favorite probably horror television show ever. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. I power watch season two to get it done in time so that we could do this podcast. Were you? Was your mind as blown as mine? Um, there's some pretty interesting stuff, but you know, we're not going to talk about it on this podcast. That's right. Cause you are going to tune in and, uh, we'll be posting links to it and everything when it goes up, but, uh, keep an eye. You should be subscribed to this is horror anyway, cause we're on about half of the episodes already. So, um, <laughs> it's kind of an extension of book to this point. <laughs> yes, indeed. So that's, that's, we'll call that our third podcast. Um, so <laughs> one podcast at a time. That's right. Taking over the world one at a time. Um, so yeah, that's it. Um, thanks for listening. If you tuned in specifically for uh, for Noir at the Bar, thanks for listening. We hope you come back. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I am Rob Olson. Keep reading.